know it's on a podcast, I'm going to waste making coffee, but I'm going to let you off because it's, uh, what time, 9 o'clock in the morning just now? California time? It's 10 now because of oh. uh, daylight savings oh, time. Yeah. So, if, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, during COVID, my, my office here, I've got, I've got two desks, I've got a fireplace, I've got a bar and a coffee machine. So I, I can pretty much lock up in here. Are you a prepper? Have you got, a, have you got a, like a rifle in there as well, just in case they come for you? <laughs> I doubt they should, I guess. <laughs> you won't go there. Hello, Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec and your host for the Instec podcast. Welcome or welcome back again, if you know us well. Another treat in store for you this week, Garrett Cohen, president of CRC. Now, CRC is one of the largest global wholesale brokers. More about what that means in a moment. Garrett and I discovered each other through an article I wrote, and we've been delighted to have had CRC support as a corporate member. Now, as you'll hear in a moment, Garrett's interest extends well beyond brokerage. He's an active investor, mentor, and forward thinker on topics such as crypto, cyber, parametric, and cannabis, and the relevance of and for insurance. Now, if you've missed the news and are wondering what happened to London, well, of course, the city itself is still there, but with our global coverage and now more than one third of our members outside of the UK, we felt it was time to reflect that in our name. So that's us now, Instec. We've released 10 reports, held 15 live events, 25 digital events, 52 podcasts, and countless articles, insights, and newsletters in the last year. And you can find out what we are thinking and why over 160 companies are now members from our website, www.instec.co. Okay, let's not hang around anymore. Let's get back to Garrett and his coffee. Garrett, great to have you today. Uh, I think 30% now of our listeners are in the US. It's always great to get somebody who is on the other side of the world, I guess in your case, almost almost uh, not exactly the other side of the world, but eight hours or seven hours time difference just now. But you are president of CRC, one of the largest wholesale brokers in the US. We're going to talk a bit more about what a wholesale broker is in a minute. Uh, you yourself are very active in looking for new solutions, really for your clients, new markets, helping the retail brokers out there. Certainly discussions I've had and what I've seen you writing and talking about, you're a big supporter of innovation yeah, across the market, and we're going to be talking about a few of those covering crypto, parametric, and some other emerging risks. And you also, I know you're a private investor as well, and you've been a Lloyd's Lab mentor, and I think there's a whole lot more things there on LinkedIn that I didn't cover. But welcome, and did I miss anything off that, or did I get anything wrong that we should uh, we should correct now? <laughs> My main job is uh, president of, uh, or co-president of brokerage for CRC. And outside of that, I've been um, active in the startup space for a number of years and uh, owned an incubator in the Bay Area with some partners and called the Battery and another one in um, Barcelona and uh, work with Lloyd's Lab and Broker Tech Ventures, which is a, a great U.S. organization and um, 500 startups, which is a more traditional um, incubator. These two worlds have obviously collided the last few years between what I've been doing historically in the startup space and uh, now the insure tech space. And then I work with uh, Hudson Structured Capital Management on their investment advisor group. And then I'm on the board of a SPAC that's looking for acquisitions that you know are insurance related and may or may not be uh, insure tech related. And that's called Keros. 
we've got a lot in there. We might have to go for uh, for longer. Uh, and all those people who are listening, who are running whilst they're listening to are out on their bikes, must have to persevere a bit longer. Or we'll do a do a volume two. Uh, I think everyone by now knows what a SPAC is, but just in case anybody doesn't, that's a special purpose acquisition company. And Gary, before we get into the various things you're doing, for those people that don't know what a wholesale broker is, could, have you got a kind of quick way of describing what the role of a wholesale broker is? We are a wholesaler, so we're a broker's broker, and um, we exist for a number of different reasons. The the quick and obvious one is we have access to something maybe that a, a traditional retail broker can't get to, but our space has grown massively over the last two decades. You know, CRC Group's a big company, and now we, we're at around $24.5 billion of, of annual premium. And you know, some of the reason our space has grown is because we're an excellent distributor. We're trading with everybody in the U.S. that's doing insurance. So if you need to distribute something efficiently, you can do that through us. Uh, we have a lot of areas of expertise that a retail broker may or may not have. Um, we can do outsourcing really well. We've got data and technology. The wholesale brokers have grown a lot because we've become more partners with the retail brokers. So my background is doing, you know, being involved in private equity flips of wholesale brokers and, and CRC is a roll up of what, you know, used to be four of the top five with, um, Tri-City and then Crump and CRC and Sweat. Crump was Marsh's wholesaler. Sweat was Anon's wholesaler. And so we're all the same company now. There's us and then, uh, Amwins and Ryan Specialty have, have really consolidated the market in the U.S. much more than the London market has consolidated. And um, so there's kind of three big players, and then it, it drops off quite a bit after that. And then that means that your clients, on the one hand, are the insurance carriers that are looking for you to deploy their capacity and find I guess, their clients. And then the other side of the equation, it's the retail brokers are going out to the well, I guess personal lines, small business and corporates all the way across those different types of ultimate client? Yeah, it's it's, it's everything really now. So, at the, you know, at the big end, it could be you're building something in a tsunami zone and you need extra capacity for property, or it could be something that's complicated, cyber, private equity, um, venture capital, cannabis is a growing space. So things that are complicated. Um, if you're If you're a carrier, if you're you know, somebody that does have capacity and you're looking to deploy it, you know, your choice is either staffing up to try to do direct outreach to the 40,000 retail brokers that exist in the United States, or instead you can distribute it through a wholesaler. And by working with, with us, you're going to get access to every retail broker in the United States anyways. And so if you're a new, you know, pick your type of facility, a new cyber facility, and try to figure out how do I quickly scale and, and, and grow. It's much easier to work with a wholesaler from that standpoint than it is to try to actually break into that network yourself. Okay. And then one more question on, on wholesale brokerage, because I, I know we've got, I don't want to say more exciting things to talk about, other exciting things to talk about, but MGAs or MGUs, as you call them in the U.S., they would also be your clients alongside the, the brokers or I guess the agents, as you call them in the U.S.? Yeah, and we and there we kind of play on both sides of, of that world. So we we have our own facilities, we have our own exclusives, we have some of our own MGAs. Um, we made a big acquisition last year of a, a big program group called Constellation Brands that has a number of different brands underneath it that are structured in that way. But then also we're on the brokerage side. A lot of those are big trading partners for us, and so we you know there we kind of play on both sides. We 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 create them, we find capacity for them, but then we also trade with them. And you've given a hint to some of the things you're seeing out there. And you used the word earlier that the uh, 
InsureTech has collided with the more traditional world of broking. Hopefully it's more uh, converged with, or I'm not quite sure what good analogy is. I'm thinking like cars coming into a freeway or something. But just to kind of get us off to start with some of the things you're seeing that are actually proving successful. Are there a couple of themes or companies that illustrate those themes that are kind of top of mind for you just now? Zendefence was sort of the first company to put InsureTech on the map. And um, as I was watching it grow out of San Francisco, you know, it kind of got this really crazy high valuation, which got up to like four and a half billion dollars. And the the founder of that company would famously say brokers are dead, which showed kind of a, a disconnect from, I think, what the conventional thinking is now that, you know, brokers probably aren't dead. And there's a lot more movement around figuring out how to supplement the distribution channel. And I think um, he lost. I think he lost that battle, didn't he? I think he disappeared before the brokers did from Zenefin. <laughs> he, he did. Yeah, he uh uh, he's, he, he did fine though. He, he, he's still doing fine. This next thing, and quietly that company kind of went away last year. It was written off for the most part, uh, which didn't get a lot of hype, which I thought was kind of interesting. At the same time, that a lot of insure tech valuations were getting really big, you know, big numbers. The first trends we saw were sort of these, you know, attack brokers, attack BSC, you know, going to consumers directly, kind of distribution. And you saw a lot of companies that have had pretty big valuations in that space, and you know, some that have gone public. Um, and those valuations have kind of come down a bit more recently as, as people are realizing it's a little bit harder to scale. Um, and I think as the venture community is starting to understand our community a bit better, my background originally was, was being involved in private equity flips of profitable wholesale brokers that were sold on a multiple of their profit and their EBITDA. Okay, uh, some quick lessons on company valuations. Now, the traditional way of valuing a business is as a multiple of the company's earnings or profit, or more precisely, earnings before interest, tax, and depreciation, often referred to as EBITDA. So if a company makes $10 million in profit and an investor decides that 10 times the earning is the right multiple to use to value the company, it will be considered to be worth $100 million. Now, this is sometimes referred to as value investing. With growth investing, investors pay less attention to earnings and are looking more at what the company could be worth in, say, five or more years' time, based on some dramatic year-on-year revenue growth projections. And many of these types of companies often involve repeated revenue software as a service or SaaS business models. Now, there's a lot more uncertainty with growth investing, and so with companies like Zenefits that Gareth mentioned, when investors think that the expected growth is not being achieved, valuations can drop a lot. As Garrett goes on to explain in a minute, and oh, and bear with us for a couple more minutes, there is some noise in the background here that we sorted out. That's much different than the valuations that I was used to dealing with as an angel investor and, and playing at starting stage companies. There, we're typically kind of putting our thumb to the wind and saying, okay, we kind of make something up, right? Like, we'll have a investment at, at, you know, between a $4 million and, uh, you know, eight or $12 million valuation when they're getting up and going, depending on how good the team is and the idea. And you, you kind of you know, honestly make that up a little bit. It's not really the right way to do the math. And between those two, it got really interesting as you saw like a lot of really big, uh, valuations coming out of the insure tech space. And in some cases, when it was like a real SaaS company and SaaS multiples work a certain way, I thought, you know, some of the valuations made sense. At other times, um, when the company was saying our premium and it was an MGA, our premium is our revenue, it's not really true, that they were getting pretty big valuations. And to me, there became like a little bit of a disconnect and, and some of that still exists. So you wouldn't probably be an acquirer of companies like that because they, they don't have big profits and they don't have big books of business. What we're starting to see now are these, you know, companies that are solving certain niches. And so, um, 
like agent sync spun out of the the problem that Zenefits had on licensing and keeping agents licenses in place. And, you know, the founder worked at Zenefits, solved that, realized it was a scalable solution that a lot of people had a problem with. And, um, uh, and the TAM there is huge and it can be valued uh, like a SaaS company because it, it, you know, effectively is one. That's kind of a niche solution that solved a really big problem that otherwise is, is inefficient currently. Let's explain a little bit about what that problem is just for people that like, like me, uh, they aren't close enough to understand what the issue is they're solving and, and why the addressable market is so big for agents think. It's a licensing issue and especially in the states because we have state licensing. And so every state has individual licensing requirements. You also have requirements of people that you trade with, kind of like vendor management, um, to make sure that their licenses are, are current and up to, up to speed, up to date. And so if you, if you take that and multiply it times all of the, all of the states and all of the individual agent licenses that you have to kind of keep up to speed, it's a, it's a massive problem for any company to deal with. And, um, obviously companies aren't on their own typically designing solutions to help solve that specific problem for themselves. And so uh, companies generally don't do it well or it's arduous. And so and that that's what he realized was a was an issue he could solve. I want to come back to an area that I know you've got a lot of interest in. And for me I'm still challenged about where it's gonna go and that's and that's crypto. But up until probably four weeks ago I just said that you know the crypto cryptocurrencies was used for investment or probably more likely uh, speculation. And then the second one seems to be paying for, for ransomware for, for hacks. I guess the third one that I think now we're seeing is you know, people in Russia or Ukraine and actually now using crypto where it's kind of hard to use conventional fiat currencies. But up until then, it didn't really look like crypto is going anywhere. But I think you're a bit more enthusiastic about the future for, for crypto. So it'd be good to know just you know, where you see it going and then maybe talk a bit about some of the insurance use cases specifically. Most of us in the Western world don't really think a lot about, um, you know, countries that don't have great currencies. So if you think of any country with like a peso or, you know, countries in Africa or Russia now, you know, in those places, when you have a currency that depreciates and stabilizes and the government abuses, you can't take a loan out. So you can't borrow money. You can't save money. You have to try to do it in other currencies. You know, when you think of people that have had to flee countries, like, Syria or, you know, Ukraine right now, if all of your stuff is tied up in a local bank, it gets pretty difficult and it's hard to move across border. If your assets are held in a crypto wallet, it's completely mobile. You can move and be using it the next day. So from a currency standpoint, there's a lot of promise in the format. It does start to, to change kind of everything over time. And I expect the euro and the US dollar both to have their own like actual tokens pretty soon. Those tokens will all eventually be valued based on their own merits and based on the networks they're powering or, you know, based on, you know, whatever their perceived market value is. You know, one of the great things about, um, these tokens is you can have like an international investment community that can move tokens around very quickly and efficiently, much different than the way we trade securities now, where it's generally on exclusive exchanges like New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or something like that. You know, one of the companies I'm excited about is, it's called Insuro, and I think you've spent some time with them before. But they're the first uh, reinsurance company that's backed by DeFi crypto. And it's really a great marriage between like the old world and the new world, where they're doing what they need to do on the regulatory side so that they can be an active reinsurer. Well, at the exact same time, they're 
you know, backing that with this new asset class. You're also tapping into people who got crypto who are looking to invest in new ways of utilizing their crypto. So there's a kind of third dimension to it that makes it quite attractive. The returns in that space are just so beyond what you see in the normal financial markets right now. I'm making 14% interest on Great Britain pounds, right? Like 14% interest on US dollars in a stable way that, as far as I can tell, is not so risky. I think more of the profits are kind of going back to the people rather than larger institutions. So insurance, that's one angle. Uh, and then, of course, there's also insuring means you can't or no insurer should be offering to insure the wallet or the contents of the wallet. That'd be foolish. But there is insurance out there for insuring the insuring the keys and, and, the, and the sort of other other aspects of crypto. I mean, what else are you seeing out there you like in that space, you know, looking at it from insurance or insurable perspective? When we're looking at the insurable side of it, that's been really tough. Edward Toss is coming out of Chicago. They're a new company that's, that's working on some of the crime stuff. Um, uh, Superscripts, a London broker that's working on some programs. And then we've got a few uh, carriers that are starting to kind of like kick around some of the insurance issues. The, the big insurance issues we've had have been crime, obviously, but I think people will get comfortable with that over time. There's a perception that, you know, crypto is all nefarious stuff and it's not traceable and it goes to ransomware and that kind of thing. And, you know, the reality is that um, crypto is much more traceable than dollars or pounds. There's not a cash element. So as long as you don't run them through mixers, which I think will become more illegal over time, which kind of like blends them and, and spreads out the payments so you can't kind of tell where things go. A bit more on these blenders and mixers, also known as cryptocurrency tumblers or cryptocurrency mixing services. So these are online services that mix potentially identifiable and often tainted cryptocurrency funds with other crypto funds in order to make it harder to track those that come from illegal activities. These are then mixed over periods of time and redistributed to different destination addresses, making it hard to establish what came from where. A bit like that basket of odd socks that's sitting in your laundry. Now... Back to Garrett and NGOs or non-governmental organizations. NGOs are actually quite excited about crypto because it allows them to see exactly where every single um, asset that they've sent goes. Right now, they lose tons of money once it turns into cash. Hello, I'm Simon, the Digital Marketing Manager at Instec. Our next evening event, Making Payments Pay, Making the Most of Payments Technologies, is taking place at Codenode in London on Tuesday, the 24th of May. We'll be discussing payment use cases and technologies, predicted industry trends, future customer demands, and how the insurance industry can benefit from a more strategic and inclusive approach to insurance payments. For more details, including speakers and how to register, go to instec.co forward slash events. You can also find the link in the episode notes of this podcast. I went on to ask Gary how CRC is supporting companies that have new types of insurance for new types of risk, where there is less of a loss history, and what markets they're able to source that coverage from. One of the problems that I've had as a, as a wholesaler is we see people come to us and they say, hey, we need capacity for X. When it's a new idea or a new product or a new association that needs something, pick your, pick your idea. The insurance market actually gets pretty fragmented. So... If it comes to me at CRC, we could do a great job of exploring um, the excess of wholesale markets, surplus lines markets. We also have the ability to go to reinsurance brokers and, and look for reinsurance capacity. But really, that's kind of a whole nother avenue of capacity that's available. 
companies like Ledger Investing that are building out uh, efficient ways to to bring capital markets into our space. For something like cannabis that's new or anything that's new that's coming to our market, there's there's been a bit of a problem there. Steer.io is, is one of the companies trying to solve that. So they're trying to create kind of like a marketplace at that level in that space. Is that the issue? Is that is that you, you put a risk out there and it's, you're not getting one of the large U.S. carriers saying, well, come on and you know, take all of this or take a significant percentage. You've got to actually spread it across. I mean, the way all those ones you listed is a combination of traditional markets, specialty markets, getting into capital that hasn't previously gone into insurance. I mean, that's a lot of different markets to go and find. Is that the issue? That this is not one single major insurer, and therefore it just comes the frictional cost of placing it is much higher. What I kind of like about um, uh, Steer talking to that other area is it's, it's an inefficient area. It's, it, it actually has some additional use for that type of a model where there's you know a spot that you could go and look to provide capacity. What about climate? Because a lot of what we're seeing on the climate change side is around regulation and requirements for reporting. I mean, the UK in particular has been particularly stringent on that and probably you know, leading the world or leading is the right word if you're being told to do things by regulator, I'm not too sure. But you've also got some angles on that where you're actually seeing opportunities on the insurance side to actually find some of what's being required to happen, but actually turn it into an insurance product. On the whole, the, the companies in Europe and the companies around London have been a bit ahead of the US companies in this regard. Beasley has done some nice things like they've, they've created a line slip through Lloyd's that's targeting ESG types of risks and opens up additional capacities to, to companies that, that I guess they view favorably in that regard. The whole issue of, you know, trading carbon offsets or carbon sequestration, which is a, a topic I like. As you look at across the world and you've got your, the activities you're doing in Barcelona, in a kind of simple way, how would you sort of compare and contrast Europe and the U.S. as to what you see is going on? For me, I think there's a few, a few big differences I see is you know, wearing my um, startup investor hat. In Barcelona specifically, you know, there some of the culture issues are a lot different. And so the idea of getting shares in as an advisor or being able to buy small shares quickly and efficiently, like in the U.S., there's a whole process. We have safe notes that allow you to very quickly invest. You don't even have to agree on the actual valuation of the company. You agree on a future valuation based on the next round. So just over time, a lot of what has happened and, you know, I'm not San Francisco based, so kind of like in, in Silicon Valley has made that process very efficient, very much part of the culture, sharing in equity is part of the culture. I am on the uh, boards of a couple of companies in Spain. It's slow. You have to get notaries involved. In the U.S., it takes seconds. Another difference that I've seen between Europe and the U.S. is just the valuations in Europe are better. Better for who? Because I would have thought the U.S. ones are, are higher. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure what you mean better. I mean higher. Uh, <laughs> the U.S. ones are higher. Well, if you're if you're a startup seed investor, then then they're better in Europe. <laughs> so you want to get you can get catch them at lower valuations. In the U.S., it's it's changed over the years. Um, when I started doing angel investing, often um, companies were kind of valued at you know one million, two million. Now they've gotten pretty high, and and often you're seeing A rounds that are really high. Um, and in in the insured tech space, sometimes you can see really big rounds at high valuations for companies that haven't done a whole lot yet. You see a lot less of that through through Europe and, and even in London. It's more conservative. It's a little bit more slow moving. The valuations are generally lower. The exits could be the same to the, you know to the benefit of that market, I think. But on the US, I mean, but, if those uh, valuations are much higher. I mean, and all money's going in, then 
the expectations of the investors are going to be high. Are you seeing, is there a sort of faster, higher fail rate in the U.S. then because people, they don't deliver on early proof, might not be revenue, but there's regular metrics to prove growth, then the investors want their money back. And or are they kind of hanging on for, for a long time because the way the funds are designed means they can do that? Zenefits, which was, you know, I would still argue was kind of the first in sure tech, you know, just eventually failed last year. And because they had raised a lot of money, it, that took a while. When you do raise those big rounds, you've got some runway. They tend to spend aggressively, but not necessarily all at once. And it gives them some time to either, you know, make it or it doesn't work. And then you have a down round or something like that. I don't think it's created like quick churn, you know, just because they have enough money that they can, they can last for a while. You mentioned, I mean, Europe, I mean, I guess now the UK, we're no longer part of Europe, but geographically we're part of it. I mean, some of the things the government did in the UK to allow investment as angels actually was ahead of what's happening in the US with some of the tax breaks and uh, you talked about the regulation and things. But I think the US has now caught up, but crowdfunding and things have been around in, in the UK, which made it a little bit more flexible, albeit uh, you said to the benefit of the investor, some lower, uh, you know, some lower cost of being in there. So I think it was going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. And nobody issues a press release when they've gone under. You don't always know what happens to these companies until you start <laughs> scratching the surface or looking on, on LinkedIn. In terms of you know, people you might want to hear from or contact you, what are you interested in hearing about or who are you interested in hearing from? I'm always interested on behalf of, uh, you know, CRC of, of anything that's new or interesting or something that we might want to look at distributing as a company. And so, you know, from, from a CRC standpoint, we, you know, we do trade with every retail broker in the United States. And so if you've got something that you want to quickly scale, we can look at that. We have a ton of data. We can reverse underwrite the entire marketplace because we've been collecting underwriting data since uh, 2014 on everything we place. So if people are interested in exploring areas to see if products can be developed, we're quite good at helping with that. Wholesalers, I'd argue, in general, are pretty good places for startups to partner with. You know, in the U.S., at least, there's there's kind of three big ones. And so you're not going to offend too many other people if you're doing something with one or two of them. And we have friendly relationships with all of the major carriers and, and all of the retail brokers. From an investment standpoint and that sort of thing, I try to look at it as much as I can. I've taken stuff in that's come in cold before and um, had some great success with that over the years. So it just depends on, on what the ideas are. CRC is not really doing direct investing. The bank that owns us has a corporate venture arm, and I've got a good relationship with them, and we'll kick things to them sometime. But for me, if things like that are done, it relates more to uh, uh, IAC Ventures, which is a fund I'm a partner in. And you know, it might be something I talk with the Hudson guys or other VCs I'm friends with about. So it's well, I'd uh, like to have you as a, a member of Instat. We're also there helping you know, act as a filter or at least you know, do a little bit of packaging up if things come through to us and, and pass them on to you as well. We're getting close to wrapping up, so I asked Garrett what else he was interested in that we hadn't covered. I love the parametric space. I do like the capital market space. There's a lot of interesting things that can be done in insurance um, and, and in the finance world generally around it. You've got a great podcast and you always have interesting guests. Great. Well, Gary, I think that, that probably brings us to the end. And uh, it was great to catch up. And yeah, looking forward to seeing you face to face. And now we're all back. London is buzzing. So uh, I'm sure you've got you know, lots of meetings when you come over. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. And as Simon mentioned back there, we have our next event in London on the 24th of May on payments. 
Hope to see you there. And if you're interested in remote claims assessment for property, you can find our recent report on that on the website, free to members. Finally, if you are wondering what you're missing out on, what you don't know and who doesn't know you by not being a corporate member, then let me know, Matthew Grant on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.co.